All right, so in the Gospel of John, John gave us eight miraculous signs that Jesus performed. Now, of course, the Lord performed a lot more than eight uh, miraculous signs um, during his ministry, uh, but John purposely told us about eight of them, and so here they are again. I've been putting these on the screen for you guys so that you can see kind of the flow of the Gospel of John. And so we saw in chapter two that Jesus turned water into wine. Uh, we're gonna see today that he's gonna heal the official's son and he's gonna heal a crippled man. Um, we're gonna see later in our study that he feeds 5,000 um, men with just five loaves and two fish, not including women and children. He walks on water, he heals a man born blind, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and my, one of my favorite stories is the miraculous catch of fish that the Lord allows the risen Christ, before he ascends to the Father, he allows the disciples to catch there on the Sea of Galilee. And so as I said, today we're gonna look at uh, miraculous sign two and three, the healing of the official son and the healing of the crippled man. But before we get into those two stories, we have to answer two questions. All right, so question number one, what is a miracle? And then question number two, why did Jesus perform miracles? All right, so first question, what is a miracle. And so one of my heroes in the faith, personally, Dr. Norman Geisler, he founded two seminaries. I had the honor of graduating from one of the seminaries that he founded with a master's in theology. He's authored or co-authored over 100 books, one of the great apologists of our time. He's now at home with the Lord. But he defines miracle as, quote, a special act of God that interrupts the natural course of events. A miracle is a divine intervention, a supernatural exception to the regular course of the natural world. All right, so as you're reading through the Bible, here's what you see. Often God will intervene. God will interrupt the natural course of events and he will perform supernatural miracles which are the exception to the regular course of the natural world. Ladies and gentlemen, since a supernatural God exists, supernatural miracles can occur. And I personally believe they can and do occur even today. Now if you're here and you're skeptical as to whether or not a supernatural God even exists, here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you is to go to our website, calvarypsl.com, click on sermons, click on recent sermons, scroll all the way down. You're gonna see Dr. Ed Heinsen, he gave a conference two years ago on end times, but then you're gonna see Dr. Frank Turek, and he gave a conference on what's called apologetics, or a defense of the faith. And I think it's like two and a half hours or so. If you're skeptical whether or not a supernatural God even exists, my challenge to you is to investigate the evidence. Go uh, and listen uh, to the conference that Pastor, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Frank Turek did here. It's there on our website. And I want you to just, just um, open up your heart and, and hear the evidence and, and listen and um, then 
um, formulate your belief, but it's so important um, that we do that. We're, we're also excited that Dr. Frank Turek is coming back to Calvary in July, this July, and so we're looking forward uh, to that as he comes again. Now, the three primary periods in Scripture where we see miracles being poured out in abundance, three primary places in the Bible. Period, the first period is the period of Moses, Lots of miracles. And then we see the period of the prophets, specifically Elijah and Elisha. Miracles being poured out. And then, of course, in the New Testament, the period of Jesus and the apostles. And so during the period of Jesus and the apostles, signs and wonders were witnessed by multitudes of people. So here's your second question. Why did Jesus perform Miracles, And the answer is that Jesus Christ performed miracles, look at this, to confirm his identity and authenticate his message. Jesus performed miracles to confirm his identity. All right, who's the question? Who is Jesus? And by the way, Jesus asked his disciples that question one day. Up in Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who by the way was an eyewitness of Jesus' miracles, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, are you crazy? Are you trying to get me in trouble? You're gonna get me killed, that's blasphemy, Peter. Is that what Jesus said to him? No. He said, blessed are you. Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood, human beings, has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, great job, Peter, you're right. I am the Christ, I am the Son of the living God. And how do we know? Well, one of the reasons that we know is because Jesus performed many miracles to confirm his identity. We see, for example, in John chapter 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever, listen, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else, here it is, believe on account of the works themselves. Philip, believe on account of the miracles themselves. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus saying, I'm confirming my identity as the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm confirming my identity as God in flesh by my miracles. He also did miracles to authenticate his message. Somebody says, well, why in the world should we listen to Jesus? Well, here's, here's some good reasons why. Because he gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave the ability to speak to mute people. He gave the ability of, of cripples to be able to get up and walk. He cleansed lepers. He turned water into wine. He multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men, not even counting women and children. He walked 
on water, calmed a raging storm. And that, if that is not enough for you, he also raised dead people. That's a pretty good reason. That's a lot of good reasons for you to sit up, take notice, and listen to the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. It's really good reasons. And by the way, those things are not fairy tales. They're facts of history reported by eyewitnesses. It amazes me, it astounds me that people can read history books and believe every single thing they read in that history book about that historical figure who lived hundreds or thousands of years ago. But when they read about Jesus, all of a sudden it's, no, those are fairy tales. Listen, the problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with your heart. The problem is for you, with you if you're not believing, if you're skeptical. And so my, my encouragement to you is, man, just investigate the evidence with a humble heart. Christ's miracles gave authenticity to his messages. And as modern day disciples, think about that term, modern day disciples. Everybody has their identity. You know, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. Listen, if you're a born again believer, God's called you to be a modern day disciple. How many of you guys consider yourself, this is my identity, I'm a modern day disciple. If that's you, raise your hand, right? I'm gonna wait for every hand to be raised. <laughs> All right, so what, what, what do we need to be doing? Instead of watching five hours of TV a night, we should be opening up the word of God and reading the words of our master and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, living out his teachings as lights in the world until he comes. And so Jesus Christ performed many miracles to confirm his identity and authenticate his message. And for that, we give him praise. And so, man, can we right now give him praise? So important. So today we're looking at the healing of the official son, the healing of the crippled man. So right now if you're looking at John chapter four, verse 43, can you say amen so I know you're there? If you're visiting with us, we're in verse 43 because last week we stopped at verse 42. All right, so after the two days, that's the two days he was in Samaria, he, Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now you got to interpret verse 45 in light of verse 44. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now don't get too excited about that. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so after spending um, two days in Samaria, Jesus heads up into Galilee, all right? So if you can see Samaria and then you can see Galilee above Samaria, just say amen so I know you're there. All right, and so the Galileans had previously been down in Jerusalem. We saw this in John chapter two. They had previously been down in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. So if you see Jerusalem way down in Judea, please say amen. So you see what's going on in the Bible. 
And so the Galileans were there and they remembered the miracles that Jesus had performed during the feast of Passover in Jerusalem. But here's the problem. Based on the whole context, um, it seems like there's an issue with their motivation for welcoming Jesus back into Galilee. In other words, I'm gonna read from John chapter two, verses 23 and 24, so you kinda understand where I'm coming from here. It says back in John chapter two, verse 23, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Now in my Bible, I have quotation marks around believed. We already went through this like four weeks ago, but remember, we, we determined that this was spurious belief. This was fake faith. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And how do you know it's fake faith, pastor? Because of verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in Man, And so now these Galileans who had been in Jerusalem and saw the miracles that he did, um, they welcome, hey Jesus, how you doing? They welcome him back to Galilee, but it's a welcome, as we're gonna see in a moment, that's based from wrong motives. All right, so let's pick it up now in verse 46. It says, so Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so while Jesus was in Cana of Galilee, if you see the little village of Cana, please say amen. While he's in Cana, there's an official, some of your translations say a nobleman, who's living up in Capernaum, up on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. If you see Capernaum, please say amen. Okay, so this official son is super sick. This official son has a fever that's so intense that this young man is at the point of death. All right, so who was this official? Well, we know historically that one uh, Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea from uh, 4 BC until AD 39. And so Herod is the ruler of Galilee and Perea uh, for all of those years. So this official most probably is a, a member of the government of Herod Antipas. He served, no doubt, in Herod's court. And so even though this governing official was prominent, and even though this governing official was powerful, and even though this governing official, right, was prosperous in his life, here's the thing. He's experiencing a trial. He's experiencing heartache. How many of you guys know that in a fallen world, no one is exempt from trials? Nobody. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care what your status is. I don't care how prominent you may be. Listen, whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, all of us 
are gonna experience some type of heartache, some type of tragedy, some type of trial in our lives. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. I just wanted to encourage everybody with that today. But it's true. And the reason I say that is because I want you to be ready, I want you to be prepared when the storm comes. Okay, and so how many of you guys know that Jesus never promised to keep us from the storms, but he promised to be with us in the storms? And that's how we make it through the storms. That's how we make it through the difficulty. That's how we make it through the heartache and the trials is that we keep cleaving to Jesus in faith. But listen, it's part of being human. We're gonna go through difficulty. So this prominent official, he's heartbroken. Why? Because the son whom he dearly loves is so sick, he's at the point of death. And so when he hears that Jesus was in Galilee, what does he do? He He's in Capernaum, he leaves Capernaum, and he travels about 20 miles or so down to Cana. He finds Jesus, and he's imploring Jesus, Jesus, please come back with me to Capernaum. Please come down to my house. Please heal my son. My son's at the point of death. Now the reason in verse 47 that he says, please come down with me, even though Capernaum is north of Cana, The reason he says, please come down with me, is because Capernaum is situated on the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee, ladies and gentlemen, is so far below sea level, you always go down to the Sea of Galilee. By the way, isn't the Sea of Galilee beautiful? And just so you know, not to rub it in, but in about a month, um, I will be there, and I'm gonna get up early, I'm gonna have my devotions on the Sea of Galilee. I'll pray for all of you guys while I'm there but I'm really gonna enjoy myself and I'm gonna pray that someday you get to go to Israel with us. But Sea of Galilee is absolutely gorgeous. It's a massive lake. You read about it all the time in the New Testament and get this, it's 700 feet below sea level. That makes it the second lowest lake on planet Earth, second only to the Dead Sea. Um, The Dead Sea, of course, is the lowest place on Earth And if you're in the Sea of Galilee, you travel 65 miles or so down the Jordan River, you eventually get down to the Dead Sea. Okay, so now we have a twist in our story that's gonna reveal the wrong motives of the Galileans. Okay, so look at verse 48. Right now, if you're looking at verse 48, just say amen so I know you're with me here. Okay, so so this guy is begging Jesus, come heal my son. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now the reason I'm emphasizing you is because both times the word you appears in verse 48, it's plural. In other words, the New King James Version has it right. Quote, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. That means that Jesus is not just addressing the official, But I believe he's primarily addressing the crowd of Galileans that are standing around that had welcomed him back home. You see, the problem is Jesus knew the crowd would never believe in him unless he wowed them with some spectacular miracle that would satisfy their carnal nature. And even if he wowed them with a 100 spectacular miracles, Would they still believe? 
You see, it's true the purpose of Jesus' miracles was to confirm his identity and to authenticate his message, but apparently the desire of these Galileans was not to trust the Savior, but to see the spectacular. That's a problem. Regarding this, John MacArthur wrote this, the response of the Galileans was fundamentally flawed because it disregarded the person of Christ and it centered in the need for a constant display of miraculous signs. Such an attitude represents the deepest state of unbelief. And so one day the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested Jesus. They said, show us a sign from heaven. Look how Jesus replied to these guys. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. So he left them and he departed. And so, man, I'm so excited because next weekend we have the opportunity to celebrate, to remember um, the greatest miracle outside of creation, the greatest miracle in all of the history of mankind. That just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so Jesus was three days in the heart of the earth. And just as Jonah came out of that quote-unquote watery tomb, so the Lord Jesus Christ came out of his tomb, alive from the dead, victorious over sin and death. That's the greatest miracle outside of creation. We're going to celebrate it next weekend. But here's my question for you. If the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the only miracle that he ever did for you in your life, would you still trust him? Man, I hope so. Because the resurrection of of Jesus Christ, again, outside of creation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is the greatest sign, the greatest wonder, the greatest miracle in all of history. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it guarantees that those who've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ will live forever. Why? Because he lives, we're gonna live. Think about that for a minute. We're so focused on our lives and our problems and our issues here on planet Earth, which is just a breath, and we got all eternity ahead of us. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? Because Jesus lives, you're gonna get a new body, and you're gonna live on a new earth, and you're gonna be able to sing a new song to the Savior. And when you've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you've got no less days to sing his praise than when you've just begun. Listen, it's time to grow up spiritually. It's time to get our eyes off of this life and our problems and our difficulties and to get our eyes on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and he came and he paid a price, uh, such a horrible price, so that you could live forever and ever and ever in heaven. Just change your mind and get excited about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not trying to whip you up in some kind of emotional frenzy here. Listen, this comes from a sincere heart because Jesus Christ deserves our worship and our praise. And as I said earlier, he's virtually ignored in the world today. So let's rise up and let's give him the praise that's due his name. Let's not give in to spiritual apathy. 
Let's stop living for ourselves. And let's start living for Christ. You've heard it before. There's only one life. It will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. So man, we're children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's act like it. Now, in this life, because yes, we are living in this life, if we're in need of a miracle, by all means, yes, ask Jesus for a miracle, just like this official did in verse 47. He still does miracles today. Ask him for a miracle. Just make sure when you ask, you ask in humility, with the right motives, with the right attitude, and with faith that nothing will be impossible with God. Now look at verse 48. Again, Jesus said to him, mainly the crowd, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official, man, this guy's desperate for a miracle. He said to him, sir, calm down before my child dies. Now try to get yourself in the sandals of this official. Imagine if your kid who you love is on the verge of death. This is serious stuff. Please, come down. And Jesus said to him in verse 50, go, your son will live. And the man, what's the next word? Believe the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And so we're gonna find out around the seventh hour, 1 p.m., Jesus says to this man, go, your son will live. And this official was so sure that Jesus would do what he said. As I think I say every week, how many of you guys know Jesus is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker? He's so sure that Jesus is gonna do what Jesus said, Apparently, he took his time going home. Now, think about this with me, okay? It's about 20 miles. They're in Cana. Jesus and the official are in Cana. It's about 20 miles from Cana um, over to Capernaum. That would equate a six-hour walk. Six hours to walk 20 miles. Now, I know for some of us, it's more like 20 hours to walk 20 miles, right? But I Googled it. One website said five hours. You can walk 20 miles in five hours, so I thought I'd add an hour. Another site said six hours, right? So about six hours to walk. And if he's got a fit horse from Cana to Capernaum, 20 miles, that's two hours. Okay, so think through this with me. At one o'clock, Jesus says in Cana, go, your son will live. Now, if you add a six-hour walk to one o'clock, that means that he makes it home by 7 p.m. that same day. Now, he's a governing official, and so I think, personally, he's got a horse and a chariot. So if he rushed home, one o'clock, go, your son will live, get my chariot. If he would have rushed home, he could have been back home by 3 p.m., burst into his house. Honey, is our son okay? If he wasn't sure that Jesus meant what he said, that Jesus was gonna do what he said, and he rushed home by 3 p.m., is our son okay? But apparently, that is not what happened. Look at verse 51. 
It says, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said, what's the next word? You see it? Yesterday. At the seventh hour, 1 p.m., the fever left him. And so after Jesus says, go, your son was gonna live, it seems like this official spends the night in Cana. He's relaxed. He's sure. He believes. And then the next day on the way home, the servants, hey, your son's doing so much better. Um, when did he start getting better? Uh, at the seventh hour, 1 p.m., the fever left him. And then we see in verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he, he himself believed. By the way, that's not spurious belief. That's not fake faith. That's the real deal there. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign, not second sign total, second sign in Galilee, sign one, water to wine, sign two, healing of the nobleman's son. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea uh, to Galilee. And so from some 20 miles away, 20 miles away, Jesus just speaks the word, go, your son will live, and he's healed. How many of you guys know there's power in the word of Christ? Power in the word of Christ. Power to heal sick bodies. Power to comfort troubled souls. Power to change lives. How many of you guys believe that power is still available today? Yeah. About half of you. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we, we think, oh yeah, all that stuff was for the Bible. It's not for today. Listen, God still does miracles today. I remember one time I was preaching and, and I was talking about what I just said and the Lord just gave me peace in my heart. I'm not trying to put this on the same level as the Bible. This, this alone is the breathed out um, word of God and it's our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. But how many of you guys know that the Holy Spirit can still move in our hearts? Right, and, and so as I was saying that God still does miracles today, I had the inner witness from the Lord. But so many people just don't believe that. They're skeptical of that. Now, here's what you need to know. Miracles are still for today, but what you gotta understand is that sometimes the Lord chooses to heal and sometimes he chooses not to heal in this life. Okay, so that leads us to chapter five, verse one. After this, there was a, a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. And so the sheep gate, John's now telling us about in chapter five, it's a little entrance that was on the north end of the city of Jerusalem and nearby the sheep gate was a pool called Bethesda, and guess what? There, there, right there, that's the remains of the actual pool from our story. 
Ladies and gentlemen, do you see it? These stories that we're talking about, they're not fairy tales. They're facts from history and archeologists are finding in the earth the stones that back up the stories in the Bible. They're there, the rocks are crying out. Everybody look at me, the rocks are crying out. It's real, <laughs> this is real. And there it is, right there. We always visit it whenever we go to Israel. It's just north of the Temple Mount. And that excavation area is right near St. Anne's Church. St. Anne's Church is famous for its amazing acoustics. And so tour groups love, when they visit the Pool of Bethesda, they love to stop in for a few minutes um, and sing their favorite hymns inside of um, that building. Why? Because the acoustics are so amazing that the most average singers sound like the greatest choir on earth <laughs> in that building. And, and so I, I know I cannot sing, but this is one of my favorite stops in Israel because I sound great inside of that building <laughs> and our whole group does. And so we're, we're excited about picking a couple songs and singing them when we go uh, to St. Anne's uh, church there. But look at verse three now. It says that in these, so we're talking about the five roofed colonnades there at the pool of Bethesda. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So the word Bethesda literally means the house of outpouring or house of twin outpourings because there were two pools next to each other. All right, so regarding this, John Phillips wrote, it seems that there were two adjacent pools and the area that enclosed them was marked by four covered colonnades with another covered colonnade, another one centered between the two pools, so five colonnades. These formed cloisters around the pool um, in, sh in the shelter of which large numbers of sick people congregated. So around this pool, there was this multitude of sick people. John tells us, man, they're blind, they're lame, they're paralyzed, way more people than you see there on, on the screen. They're all pressed together underneath these five roofed colonnades, hoping against hope that they will one day be miraculously cured. Now, if you're listening to me, say amen here. Amen. Here's the big problem. Their hope was based in superstition. How many of your Bibles has a verse four? Please raise your hand. So you have wording underneath four. How many of your Bibles don't have verse four? Please raise your hand. Okay, so what's going on there? What's going on there is that in some of your versions, there's a longer verse three and there's a verse four. And so for those of you who have a longer verse three and a verse four, your Bible say that these ill people were, quote, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whomever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Okay, so what's going on? Why is that in some Bibles and not in others? Well, um, Dr. Chuck Swindoll said this. A portion of chapter five, verses three and four, doesn't appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts. Most likely, an early scribe added the text, that's verse four and part of verse three, as a clarification based on his knowledge of 
tradition. And so apparently what's going on is that John writes the Gospel of John, but you know the scribes would copy so there's someone copying the Gospel of John, there's someone copying the Gospel of John, there's someone copying it, and apparently, an early scribe, he added to John's words the rest of verse three and verse four as an explanation for the superstitious belief in the first century um, of why uh, people uh, believed that the waters got stirred up. And so the Pool of Bethesda had this reputation in the first century as kind of a healing health spa, so to speak. And when its waters were stirred up, supposedly the waters had curative powers. Okay, so here's a million dollar question. Who troubled the waters? Again, Swindoll says this, a curious blend of Hebrew religion and Greek, what's the word? held that an angel of God periodically stirred the water and promised healing to the first invalid able to pull himself into the pool. Okay, here's the question. Did an angel actually come down and stir up these waters? The answer is no. No. You say, well, how do you explain it? Well, one way to explain it is that there was an intermittent influx of fresh water that came from the hidden reservoirs of the hills around the city, and that caused the waters to rise and fall. And when people saw the waters rise and fall, they had no explanation. Oh, an angel is doing this, and they would all try to get into the pool as soon as possible. Does all that, all that make sense to you guys? All right, so look at verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And so after being passed over so many times, over and over and over again, by people who were getting into, into the pool before him, this guy apparently loses all hope that he'll ever get better again. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. And that is, as a Jew, he had no business accepting this superstition this superstitious belief about the pool of Bethesda. This guy, no matter what was going on in his life, should have put his trust in the Lord. And now the Lord himself is standing next to this guy. And he says to him, do you want to be healed? And after hearing his answer, it says now in verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up. Don't you guys wish you were there? Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was, what's the word? Healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now even though John didn't record it, after being crippled for 38 years, yes, he got up and walked, but how many of you guys know that later on, he did laps around the pool of Bethesda? He ran, he jumped up and down, he danced, why? Because he's so incredibly happy, filled with joy, that man, look, I am absolutely healed. I can walk, I can run, I can dance, but here's what's so sad, not everybody is so excited. And now entering into the scene, the party poopers. 
They're always there, like almost every page of the Gospels. Here they come again. Look at verse nine. Now that day was the what? Sabbath, Shabbat. It means to cease, to cease working. So the Jews, that's the religious leaders, by the way, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. (laughs) You would think they would look at him and say, hey, we know you. You've been laying by this pool for how long? And, And now you're walking? Wow, praise the Lord, what happened, man? That's what they should have said. But instead of that, they're legalistic. They're looking down their nose, criticizing instead of rejoicing with this guy. Why? They're criticizing him for violating, if you're listening, say amen here, for violating their interpretation of the fourth commandment to keep holy the Sabbath day and do no work. Ladies and gentlemen, God gave the Sabbath to Israel to be a blessing, but the religious leaders, they attached so many man-made rules, what turned, what was supposed to be a blessing turned into a legalistic burden and chore, and so you can't carry your bedroll, it's the Sabbath. Here's your last four verses, and we'll be done. Verse 11, but he answered them, the healed man answers the religious leaders, the man who healed me That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. You see that? Not only did he not know Jesus' name, he didn't even know Jesus was the Messiah. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Please notice, every word's important, there was a crowd, a crowd in the place. You see, out of all the sick people who were at the pool of Bethesda that day, as far as we know, Jesus only healed one. You see, sometimes the Lord chooses to heal And sometimes the Lord chooses not to heal in this life. Three weeks ago, you guys got a beautiful, awesome sermon from Pastor Andrew Webb. And he talked about Johnny Erickson Tata. I mean, talk about an example of a godly Christian woman who's full of faith. She's been a quadriplegic since her diving accident at 17 years old. And you know what she would say if she was standing here, looking out at all of you? She would say, his grace is sufficient for me. Sometimes the Lord chooses to heal. Sometimes he chooses not to heal in this life. But the good news is, if the Lord chooses not to heal you in this life, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, one day you're gonna receive the ultimate healing in his presence. And that's gonna be a glorious day. You, again, are gonna have a new body on a new earth with a new eternal life, singing a new song 
to the Savior, the hero who died for your sins and rose again the third day. And listen, in that day, ladies and gentlemen, he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If anybody's looking forward to that day, man, put your hands together. Let them know how awesome that's gonna be. It's gonna be a great day.